you may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorah.gmail.com, and of course, I will answer as many as I can. The weather, we are in the middle of November. It is gorgeous outside. It's hot in here. It is gorgeous outside. If we could only open some windows in here. No, studios don't have windows. But who knows what the future will be. couple shows, and we are off to the new studio. I don't know what it looks like. I'm not going to help build it or design it. But stay tuned and check out our new studio coming soon. Well, this week's Torah portion, so many things happening. I myself am in between so many things happening. Like, life happens. It's, it's amazing. We are so busy. Uh, had my son's bar mitzvah. Then we had a tremendous, successful fundraiser for, for the school I'm with. But, like, we just blew past whatever we imagined we were going to earn. That was a matching campaign. It was fantastic. Then off to my son's wedding. Back from my son's wedding, and we're sort of like in an in-between week. Then I actually get a week to be normal. Then off to the next wedding. So we are really busy. Lots of amazingly good stuff that we have to thank God for, and we do, and we appreciate. And let's dive into this week's Torah portion while we have the time. You know, time, it just it reminded me, I was studying with a friend last night. So we study, it's called Path of the Just by a, a person whose acronym was the Ramchal. So he writes in there that if a person had a few minutes every day to, for introspection, to just think who he is, what he is, where he's going, what he's doing, a few minutes a day, he would never sin. He'd think about God, think about himself, think what's right, what's wrong. But the evil inclination keeps us so busy that we don't have time to think. So I told the person I was studying with, he's a businessman, and, uh, and the Ramchal himself explains how people are always kept busy, whether it's trying to earn a livelihood or trying to keep busy or entertainment, and, and look at all the, the entertainment out there to keep us so busy so we don't think. So I told him, I, th- I said, you think I don't have the same problem? You think the Ramchal is not talking to me? I'm also amazingly busy. I must do this page in this tractate and this page in this tractate and this Talmud and this Mishnah and study with this child and study with that child and this Mishnah and this piece of, uh, of Chumash. I'm so busy. I'm busy doing good stuff. But even I forget to take some time, some introspection, some time to think what's happening. This is an interesting thought. right? We all imagine that that, oh, he has no time, and I have no time, but this guy has all the time in the world. I wonder sometimes, the evil inclination is so smart, he has the ability, even when we're doing good stuff, to keep us too busy from doing what we should be doing. It's just a random thought that's not so random, but it came up last night, so I thought it was fascinating. 
Okay. So let's get back into the story. I'm going to give a quick overview and then dive into what I wanted to really talk about. So Jacob leaves home. His father and mother tell him in last week's story abortion, it's time to get married. My son, you are 63 years old. Maybe you should think about a wife. So he says, fine. I'll go think about getting a wife. Then he takes a, a, uh, a brief little uh, stop off in a yeshiva, studies for 14 years. He's on the road. He goes all the way to Haran. Haran is probably Iraq. And he's almost there and he says, I can't believe it. I forgot to pray where my father prayed, where my grandfather prayed, Abraham and Isaac, where the binding of Isaac was. Let me go back. So he goes back to pray, and when he gets to the mountain, God makes the sun set early, so Jacob will have to stay overnight. So he takes a bunch of stones, he puts it around his head to protect him from the animals. Again, I'm not exactly sure why 12 big stones is protecting somebody from animals. The animal can come by your feet, but whatever. So it says all these big stones he puts around his head. He wakes up in the morning, one stone. Finally, he has a famous dream with the ladder. The ladder's uh, the feet are in Beersheba. The top of the ladder is either in Basel or above Jerusalem. And, and uh, Jacob sees this is where prayers start down here and go up to heaven. God says he'll take care of him. And, uh, okay, fine. So Jacob then goes to Haran. He runs into his uncle, Uncle Lovan, and Uncle Lovan is a world-class trickster, shyster, con man, which we're going to talk about, and Jacob wants to marry Rachel, and his father-in-law fools him, and he marries Leah. By the way, talking about weddings, you know, it is, uh, and again, we're just doing this fast, there's a lot of wedding stuff we do because of Jacob's uncle, who is busy doing tricks. For example, many people try try, doesn't always work, but they try that the oldest daughter should get married before the next daughter in line, and next, and next, and next. Um, they had a week of, of a celebration, we call that Sheva Brachis, seven days of festive meals. They also, uh, before the bride walks down to the chuppah, so they cover her face, we, we call that the bedekin, it's in Yiddish. So um, that also comes from Lavan. So it is funny that this uncle, who uh, wasn't really such a good guy, but there's so many things we do by our weddings because of him. It's just very fascinating. Anyway, so first he marries uh, Leah. He's tricked. And he has to, then he marries Rachel. And then he's there working for 14 years. And he has 11 out of the 12 tribes. And then... He wants to leave, and uh, his uncle convinces him, or now father-in-law, they'd stick around, earn some money, they another six years, and, and then and then he leaves, and Lovin chases him. God has to tell him to leave him alone, and they end up making a peace treaty, which, of course, Lovin doesn't keep, and that is the Torah portion in a four-minute nutshell. So it's a pretty long Torah portion, and we just gave you the basic overview. But I wanted to talk about this. I saw something very interesting. There was a Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was like chief rabbi of England. His yard site was actually, I believe, about a week ago, I think, a week or two ago, very recent. And he points out something very fascinating. 
if you if you look at Jacob's life, he had a very interesting life, and he suffers a lot. And most of his suffering comes from out of the blue. He, okay, so he's on this mountain. He has to go to sleep. God comes and talks to him. He's all frightened. He goes to meet Lavan, trying to get a wife. He's suffering over there. He's going to be by himself when he meets the angel. And next week's Torah portion, everywhere he goes, all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, things seem to happen. He, and he's always alone, by the way. Every time things are happening, he's, he's from the only one of the forefathers that every time something happens, he's by his lonesome. And it happens multiple times, by the way. We can even break it down more. Um, he's leaving to go to Haran. He's attacked or met by his nephew. His nephew's name was Alifaz. That's Esau's son. So this is his nephew. And his nephew says, Oh, Uncle Jacob, you know... Uh, I would love to help you out, but my father said I have to kill you. You know, we did study a lot together, and we have a good relationship, but you know, in my family, what our father says takes precedence over everything. So what should I do? Do you have an out for me? So Jacob's alone. Lots of money with him, lots of animals. He's going to get married. He needs to bring money to buy his brides because he knows who he's dealing with. So Jacob says, you know, Alifa's my nephew. If you take all my stuff... If you take everything, the shirt off my back, all my money, I'll be a poor man. And the Talmud says a poor man is like he's dead. So if you take all my money, you don't got to kill me. Okay? Then he's off. He goes to the mountain. He's alone, has the dream. He goes to Lavan. Lavan's going to take major advantage of him. Right? You got to work for seven years. Then you can marry my daughter. No money. You work for my daughter seven years. And we'll see Lavan... This is just the beginning of Lovin's tricks. Now you got to work another seven years because I tricked you. I gave you the wrong daughter. Then you're going to work for six years on your own. And Lovin, again, is going to try multiple tricks. He's all alone. He, he's by his lonesome with everything he has to deal with. Yes, God is there, but he is by himself. He's going to fight the angel again in next week's Torah portion. He's alone. The family is, is not with him. So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wants to know why is this happening? Why is it that he's always alone? So he says that's really the story of the Jewish people, and that's why we have Abraham, the great Abraham, kindness. We have the great Isaac, prayer. But the Jewish people come from Jacob. Yes, they come from Jacob, who came from Isaac, who came from Abraham, but the Jewish people come from Jacob. He has 12 tribes has 12 sons, they're all righteous. The Jewish people comes from that whole family. Why? What's the big deal? Because that really is our survival historically. Historically, wherever we are, we're always by ourselves. Just go, go through our history. Every time something major happens, the temple is destroyed, there's no one to help us. Um, we go into exile, there's no one to help us. Spain, we're thrown out of Spain, no one to help us. A holocaust, thrown out, no one to help us. And what happens if, again, if you look amazingly at, the, at our history, every time that there's a nation, there's a group that tries to destroy the Jewish people, they do pretty well. I mean, where every single time we're on the ropes, and then God comes and saves us, and we're, we're a shadow of what we were, and then we amazingly rebuild, but... What do we rebuild? We rebuild in our Torah scholarship. 
That's an amazing thought. Which facet of the Jewish people keeps rebuilding? So again, if you look at it, it's, it's just amazing. You have the destruction of the temple. After the destruction of the temple, we have one of, I'm going to say a whole bunch of times greatest, but really, really, you have the Mishnah is then created. I don't want to say created. Created is the wrong word. The, the oral law. You have the written Torah. That always we had. But the explanation was always was passed on from teacher to student. Then we had to write it down because it was becoming too difficult. So they wrote the Mishnah. And then soon after, we get to the Talmud. Now, you write the Mishnah. And then again, there's all kinds of Roman persecutions. And then we have a time in Babylonia where we get to set up the Talmud. Everything is Talmud nowadays. The most, we call them Talmudic scholars, people sitting and studying. By the time they get to high school, Talmud becomes the focus, and that is the focus of a, of a Tal- Talmudic scholar. Talmud, right? right? That is the focus for the rest of their lives. Then you have the Middle Ages. What happens during the Middle Ages? So the rest of the world was dark. We had our greatest, you have Rashi, the commentary on, on, on Bible and on Talmud and Nachmanides and Maimonides and, and these greatest scholars, the amount of Torah scholarship exploded. And then you have times again where persecuted throughout Europe and then again scholars uh, spring up. Then comes the Holocaust, we run to America and the scholarship in America and in Israel. You have schools with with 10,000 students. You have, in, in place on the East Coast, there's hundreds, hundreds of Jewish high schools. Forget about elementary schools. They're just, they, they just sprout up. The, the amount of scholarship is not to be believed. The amount of people studying Talmud is amazing. So that's why, you know, it's, we, we come from Jacob because that's what we needed in our genes. We needed somebody that every time he was alone and it looked like disaster struck, he was able to come out of it and build. And that's the lesson, that's the message that what the Jewish people have gone through, that we seem to be you know, lost and then we rebuild and it just keeps on happening. And therefore, as important as Abraham's kindness was, uh, it's really a lesson for next week's story portion, by the way, and I'm sure we'll re-talk about it. But um, in next week's story portion, the angel is going to come and fight with Jacob. When Jacob goes back, to, he's, he got his whole, all his family across the river, he goes back for some stuff he left behind. So Jacob goes back and he meets the angel and they wrestle through the night. Exactly, they fight with an angel. It's a very good question. I don't have a good answer. But uh, they all ask, why didn't he fight with Abraham? Why didn't they fight with Isaac? Why does he wait till Jacob? Because Abraham represents kindness, amazing kindness, amazing. But there's a lot of kind people in the world. Being kind is not exclusive to being Jewish. It's not exclusive. Prayer, Isaac, go pray. Let the father sit and pray all day long in his synagogue. As long as I got the kids running around, uh, Rabbi Monk says, as long as I got the kids running around in the hallway, Ah, the kids will be mine. They won't pray like the father. But Torah study, which is what Jacob represents, Jacob represents Torah study. That, the angel knows, is the only thing that allows the Jewish people to continue. Therefore, the angel has to fight with Jacob. Okay. 
Now, it is interesting, once we're talking about this, so Jacob is told by his father to go get married. He's 63 years old. So what does he do? He stops off in yeshiva to go learn for 14 years. Now, I don't know about you, but if my father, a blessed memory, would ask me to go somewhere, and I tell him, you know, I'm sorry, I got sidetracked, so I went to study for a week, so I'm sorry I'm a week behind. Uh, here's what you asked for. Hello? I needed it a week ago. Right? Where were you a week ago when I asked you to go take care of it? How is that listening to his father? Right? But Jacob, again, represents Torah. And all the years he'd been studying by his father, which was amazing. But now he's going out into the world. He needed a, a, a different, not a different Torah, but he needed a different angle. He needed to be in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever to get Torah study from them. So he would be equipped, prepared to go ahead and, and, uh, and be able to uh, protect himself, to withstand what was going to happen when he shows up by Lavan. So what happens? So he, uh, again, he gets to Lavan. He, he, sees the, um, he sees these groups of shepherds waiting around to give their sheep to drink. And they explain to him, it's early, but the, the water table is very low. So the well is not overflowing. There's just a certain amount every night that fills up in the well. And we're afraid if one shepherd comes early, he's going to take all the water, be nothing left for the rest of us. So we have to go ahead and all, we got this huge stone that it takes all of us to roll off. So everybody gets equal amounts. Jacob sees Rachel coming. He's so strong, he takes the stone off by himself. And we've talked about this in the past. Uh, the water, which is always representative of Torah, by the way, the water level all of a sudden rises to the top of the well. There is now an abundance of water, and that abundance will stay there for the next 20 years as long as Jacob is hanging around town. And Lovin tells everybody, as soon as the water level drops back to the old days, that means Jacob is left. You call me, I'll get him back, which is what he tries to do at the end of the Torah portion. So he, he, uh, he, go, he tells Rachel who he is, okay? He cries, doesn't have any money to give her. He knows he's going to be tricked. And she goes and tells Lovin. Lovin comes out to greet him, assuming that he's got money. If he doesn't have money, he probably has a money belt. Maybe there's diamonds in his mouth. He checks him out. Ain't no money. But Lovin, the fine fellow Lovin is, says, Oh, you know, you're a relative. I'll let you hang out by me. He made him work, but at least he brought him home. So Lovin says, so what do you need? I want to marry your, do- your, younger, your daughter, your younger daughter, Rachel. And uh, it's really very interesting, by the way, that they, so Lovin says, okay, what's the price? You got no money, it's going to cost you. So Jacob says seven years, which seems to be a crazy amount of time to uh, work to get married. There's multiple answers. One answer is Rachel was a little girl, too young to get married. So anyway, he's going to have to wait around seven years so you anyways have to wait seven years. So, okay, say seven years. The fascinating thing is that, that Lovan, the shyster, the crook, the gangster, doesn't bargain. Why doesn't he bargain? So it's all very interesting. Honest people, when you and I want to make an honest deal, so I'm trying to get what I think is fair, you're trying to get what you think is fair, but at the end of the day, 
when we come to an agreement, whatever that agreement is, we're going to stick to the agreement. We made a deal, we stick to the deal. End of story. Lovin, on the other hand, has no intention of keeping this deal. He needs, he needs to get Jacob working. Once he has him working, he'll get him to work longer, harder. We're going to see. It's going to become 14 years. It's going to become 20 years. So Lovin is a dishonest fellow. So a dishonest fellow doesn't bargain because I'm not going to keep my part of the bargain anyways. Which also, I tell you, there's a lot of laws we learn for the wedding, um, all the different customs that we do. There's a very interesting document that we, by some people, they actually write the document up as soon as the couple is engaged. Um, but for many of us, that document is written up at the wedding. A very fascinating document. It's called Tanoim. Tanoim means conditions. Um, and my son calls me up the other night and says, okay, what do I do with this piece of paper? I said, you can throw it in the garbage. It's worthless now. It is a document that is signed with, with legal, there's wording legalese and there's different actions that have to be done to make it a legal document. And the document says that neither side, not the, not the groom's side, not the bride's side, have any complaints. In other words, any conditions, any deals, any money, any presents, anything that was discussed before the wedding, everybody at this point is in full agreement that all deals were met. And you make a, you have to you pick up a handkerchief, it's called a Kenyan, we're not going to get too involved in that, that's too nitty gritty for us, but you, you make what's called a Kenyan to say, yes, I, the father of the groom, you, the father of the bride, we agree that all the conditions have been met, and, and the last condition is, and we agree to walk our children down the aisle to the chuppah. Then it's, the document is signed, and then the truth is, once you make your way down to the chuppah, so that document is done. It's funny that, that in my circles, that and it is done at the very last minute. Perhaps part of it is because we want to make sure everyone did what they said they were going to do. And for the most part, there's nothing major, some presents. At the end of the day, what do you think someone's going to do? He said he was going to give something, he didn't give it. You think people are fighting? I hope not. I hope not. But for the most part, all the monetary and all the presents and the setting up of the houses, it would seem for most regular, average people, all that stuff is covered. And, uh, and that is usually how it is. Every side knows what they're responsible for. They take what they're responsible for. So, um, anyways, so that's the difference between these two types of marriages. So, am I little itty bitty time left I think um, so Jacob so Jacob is going to end up marrying Leah then Rachel then the two maidservants in a seven year period he has 11 children so but I just want to talk about one of Leah's children Leah's fourth child she names Judah or Yehuda. the name Jews Yehudim comes from that child that's a word that happens to mean thanks that is a word that represents appreciation thank you Gratitude, because the matriarchs, the mothers, all knew there were going to be 12 tribes. There were going to be 12 sons. And they figured four wives, three sons each. So Leah now has her fourth son. She says, now I have to thank God. So I thought a lot about this. When I say now I have to thank God, wait, you didn't thank God till now? You think you deserve to have the first three kids? Not everybody else had three kids. 
And second of all, who ever heard of a mother not thanking God for any children? It's it's completely ridiculous. So I think I think the the idea behind it is that Leah says I have so much appreciation. I now recognize that even my first child, my second child, my third child, I wasn't showing enough appreciation. Now with my fourth child, I'm so overwhelmed with thanks. I need a constant reminder of how much I have to thank God. I'm going to call my kid thank you. I'm going to give my kid a name that has to thank you. And of course, we are now at the end of this show. The music is playing. I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Of course, I can't do it without my wonderful sponsor listeners. And of course, I can't do it without my production team. I have David and Andy behind the table. I have a pleasure and food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi T. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah and NRM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. For the world we're gonna make.